right. Okay. We're gonna use this one. Damn it. Gonna use this intro. This is Andre Kylik of Will Go Do Podcast, and I am talking with friends of mine that I want you to know. And I guess uh, some of those people I don't know yet. So in that case, there will be friends um, that I want to make. And this podcast is an excuse to meet them. Uh, case in point will be uh, Matt Rutherford, who I'm going to jump into our conversation here right quick. But uh, he's just this fascinating guy. I've been following his story for a little while. And yeah, he starts uh, describing his upbringing, um, which was something of a juvenile delinquent start. Um, I, th- I don't know, maybe even a bit more hardcore than that. But uh, you know, that contrasts with uh, what he's done since, which includes uh, some incredible. I mean, we're talking, you know, legend status in the single-handed sailing world, and. Uh, a nonprofit that he uh, founded and is heading called Ocean Research Project. So we get into, uh, yeah, discussing all of those things. And gosh, he's just, I don't know, a super bright, um, you know, well-rounded, yet rough-edged dude that is super reasonable. And uh, I don't know, at the same time, he's sort of like uh, Forrest Gump's grittier twin brother, <laughs> um, which... Uh, I guess is a fun way of saying he's 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 lived quite the life. Uh, so, I guess I don't know. I don't need much to say much more. Uh, listen in. He's got some cool stories to share. This is what we talked about. Can't get that on TV. So I was just curious because you've got such a, you know, it's it's very unique. I think a bunch of the different aspects of your life, like people have been through that stuff, but jam them all together, and it's it's really incredible but um really unique so what's it been like that that journey just kind of in overall terms for you um well it it has i mean if you want to go back to the beginning sort of thing i mean it's there it's um when i was younger i never looked further than that day you know like i couldn't see the future um and maybe i didn't want to you know and i mean i guess when you're a kid it's different when you're a kid i mean you're growing up a kid I, it was a normal enough uh, household outside of growing up in a cult, which was weird. But, you know, that generally, I mean, we lived in a fairly middle class scenario. I always had uh, food in the fridge and a roof over the head. And um, I thought that growing up in this cult thing was just the way everybody was to some extent. You know, I knew something was special about it. But it. Um, so I don't know. I guess childhood in a lot of ways was normal up until about eight, up until about nine, ten years old. We got out of that cult when I was ten. And um, then everything sort of started falling apart. They, they call basically the cult leader, uh, her story, and it's a her, which you don't find all the time. Often it's a male cult leader. The nice thing about a female cult leader, though, is that you don't deal with all the weird sexual shit that sometimes you hear about with the guys. Basically, she'd just mindfuck you. I mean, she would uh, build you up and tear you down, and she just... I would love to sit down and meet her. Like, it would, I would love right now to be able to sit down and talk to her, just because I wonder, like, how did this lady convince so many people that she was like Jesus, basically, like this this deity thing. And, and of course, um, she was like the glue that held my parents' relationship together. And, and uh, so, I, I mean, I think that it was pretty normal when I was a kid, although it wasn't. It, it seemed pretty normal. And it wasn't really until I got into, like, preteen that everything started, started, you know, going downhill, I guess you could say. 
And, you know, I became very angry and, and I lost whatever trust I had in my parents because at one point, maybe I was 11 or 12, I realized that there was no time when they like pulled us aside and was like, this is what you grew up believing and this is the way the world really is or any of that sort of conversation. So one day I just sort of realized, you know, that I grew up in this, this scenario, uh, this cult thing. And it's sort of like, well, how can my parents believe this nonsense? You know, and so it was it probably wasn't the best way to deal with the situation. You know, but I was a kid, so I just didn't, uh, I don't know. So I became very angry, and by the time I was 16, I've been locked up five times and been to rehab twice, although the rehab thing was just because the, the judges didn't know what else to do with me. You know, it's not that I was out there on the corner freaking selling my shoes for crack or something, you know, but I was still doing a lot of drugs way beyond my time. So at that point in my life, I had no idea what the future was. I couldn't see the future. Um, I don't know if I wanted to see the future, um, but... Uh, the, the fifth time I got locked up, basically the fourth time I got locked up, I was in the same cell, cell uh, 46 with this kid Smith, which nobody calls each other by their first name. It's always their last name. So I was Rutherford. He was Smith. I don't know why that is. It's just some jail thing, I guess. And uh, so we get out and a few months later, I get locked up, put back in the same cell. And um, like, you know, next day Smith walks in. It's like, what, the, what are we doing here, Smith? Like, what are you doing? He's like, what do you mean? What am I doing? What are you doing? I'm like, well, fuck, we just, and they had three designated beds, and I was in, like, the same designated bed in the same cell, and so was Smith. So it was, like, deja vu, and I realized at that point that I needed to make some changes or else I was going to spend my life in and out of jail. Um, was uh, was that guy Smith someone you knew outside? Like, no. You had, so you didn't run together and you got locked up together. It was just. Yeah. Just that's when you met, when you both got locked up for whatever. It's an interesting <laughs> dynamic because um, there are there are, there are kids who get locked up and like you get locked up once and that's enough for them to like change their ways. And then there's hard headed people like I was and Smith was and a lot of other people who just get locked up over and over and over. So what happens is you have friends on the inside and you have friends on the outside. And you, I never saw my friends on the inside outside even though we lived in the same county because it's you know everybody in one county goes to one jail that's how they you know break them up or whatever but i never would spend any time with them but then you get locked up and you see your friends again you know you get to see your inside friends it's like hey how you been man you know so yeah but there was a weird that we never did hang out outside it was like outside there was separation yeah. you know you'll hang out with your outside friends unless you get locked up with them which does happen so some any of those times, but maybe the times with Smith, like what were you getting locked up for and and what was this detention facility? like? What, what? It wasn't. They tore down the detention facility because it was old. They built a new one um, not long after I turned uh, became an adult. Um, the first one was, was uh, Grand Theft Auto and then burglary, aggravated burglary, which is bullshit. Aggravated burglary means you got to like do it with stealth. I was blacked out drunk. Like, I have no mind. There's no way I could have been stealthy. Like, I, I don't even remember the situation. The other time was bullshit, too. We were, my friend was in rehab, and we were kids, and he lived near the high school. And so we would skip school, and we would go in, like, and smoke weed in his house. And his mom was at work, and he was gone. And we would leave roaches for his mom. His mom smoked weed. And somebody broke into the house and actually stole something. And she thought it was whoever was leaving the roaches or whatever. And so we walk in the house one day. And she was a big, heavy set lady, maybe like 350 pounds. And I'll never forget it. We take like two steps into the house. We use a credit card to get through the door, you know. And uh, and she jumps out in like a giant muumu, like this big giant muumu thing, and just boom, jumps out right in front of us with a phone in her hand. And I was like, oh shit, I need to use the bathroom because I had to go flush my weed, you know, because I didn't, you know, I knew the cops were coming. But I should have fought that case 
because my friend did, and of course the the mother dropped the charges. But I just I don't know. I'd been arrested enough times. So I was like, fuck it, you know, I'm guilty. Yeah. Lock me up, whatever. Um, and then once you get, I mean, I spent a month in jail once for a half a gram of weed, which is crazy, you know, half a gram of a plant. But once you get into the system, it doesn't take much. So, um, and that's, that's sort of this perpetual, and that happens in the adult scenario even more. This is revolving door. It's real easy to get locked back up once you're on, you know, parole or probation or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the, one of the guys that I'll be talking to soon, a friend, Charlie Ingle, and, and he did 18 months in Virginia for, it was like for lying on a, on a, um, mortgage loan. Wow. Um, so, he, but he got a lot of insights on, on just, you know, how, how the guys are treated and you know they're not helped at all most of it's drugs mm -hmm. um and you know he he probably did as much as as the uh, institution ever did you know just in the time that he was there and yeah. it sounds like it's the same for kids yeah there's no rehabilitation um you got to be careful of detention officers because they'll they'll i mean you got to worry about them almost more than you got to worry about the other, the other inmate half of them are, are animals or two-thirds of them are animals you know they'll spit in your face walking down the corridor for no reason at all you walk right past them and you get spit in the face it's like, how do you never talk to this person before, you know? <laughs> and uh, But if the detention officers didn't like you, they would give you a shower party. So, like, when you're in the shower and your eyes are all soapy, all of a sudden, like, two or three guys would run in there and beat you up. And that's because you're pissed off the detention officer, and he doesn't want to hit you. But he'll get the other – he'll get, like, the biggest inmates, the big rowdy guys, and then he'll give them, like, bags of Doritos, you know, like little tiny bags or whatever. He'll give them something under the table. So you had to worry about detention officers, really, more than you had to worry about the other people. But, yeah, there's no rehabilitation. There was none of that shit. It was you just sit in the cell most of the day. You don't have the same rights as an adult, so you don't have to go outside. They don't have to let – like, I never went outside. Like, they never let you outside because that's – as a juvenile, you don't have the same rights, basically. But, I mean, generally speaking, it wasn't that bad. You know, whatever. It's juvie, right? I mean, it's not like prison. You're not dropping the soap and worrying about, I don't know, tossing salad or any of that kind of crazy yeah. stuff. You know, it was pretty, pretty minimal in all that regard. Um, and it, I, it was enough of a taste that I didn't want to, to see the adult version, you know, and a lot of my friends, uh, I was getting locked up more than a lot of my friends at that time, but I got out of it uh, or changed enough of my ways where they continued and they got locked up a lot more as adults, you know, which is a lot longer. So you don't get slapped on the wrist anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you seem like a pretty bright guy and, and, you know, still took you five times, oh, yeah. you know, to figure it out. Yeah, that's normal for me. I got to hit my head on the wall five times before I realize it hurts. You know, I'm yeah. I'm a hard headed. Yeah, probably uh, uh, similar, similar like that. Um, all right. So when you went in this fifth time, you realized, OK, like this is the same shit. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I've seen this story before. Let's change something. Um, I know you ended up at Eagle Rock at this um, school for what at-risk youth or troubled yeah, youth. Yeah, sort of. I mean, they, they, they do some of that. But how did you end up there? Like, was this your decision? And was that sort of your choice to say, all right, I got to do something different. How, how do I start? Yeah, you'll never succeed there if somebody tries to afford it. So the school is completely funded by Honda, the motor company. And it's sort of odd. Um, Honda pays millions of dollars. They pay, I don't know, $10 million to build it, maybe more. And they spend two, three million a year, um, and they don't even talk about it. You know, it's not. I mean, they could use it as like this PR thing, but I think it's more genuine because they don't brag about it. You know, it's just something they want to do to. But basically, everybody there is on a thirty-five thousand dollar a year scholarship. So my parents and family didn't have money to send me off to any school, and and quite frankly, I wouldn't have gone, or I would have raised hell and got kicked out when I got there. 
you cannot force anybody to change. You can sort of help them on that road, I guess. But ultimately, the person has to make that decision for themselves. And so I had come to the point, I'd heard about Eagle Rock. My parents told me about it a few years before that. I didn't want anything to do with it. And at the time, I was actually too young. You got to be, I think, 15 or something to get in. And so this time I was 16. I knew the school, it took me a year to get in. I didn't get in and start going there until I was 17. So I was the only person from Ohio to ever get in there. I think I'm the only person from Ohio to ever graduate at this point. Only 16% of the students graduated who went to the school. So not many people, just to graduate was like some, you know, event of some sort. Um, and graduating is like with a high school diploma? Yeah, exactly, a high school diploma. So, um, but it's a very, alter- the school only has like 80-some students. Their average classroom is like six, eight kids and two teachers, which normally before that I went to a school with like 4,000 students and there's like 40 kids in a class. So it was a very different uh, dynamic and there, there was no juniors, seniors, freshmen, none of that existed. Uh, you were there as long as you're going to be there to graduate. So I was there three years. Um, and uh, it just, you know, because I didn't have any credits when I came over, basically. I graduated when I was 20, which does get a bit aver- you know, irritating because they have these uh, uh, interns from um, uh, Princeton that come every summer. They have like college interns who are like in their 20s, but that's not a big deal. But you got some 18-year-old kid from Princeton coming in telling you to turn your lights off and go to bed and you're 20 years old yeah, yeah. and I'm also bigger than the dude. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. but you know, whatever, you know, you swallow your pride and turn your lights off, but you know, whatever. I mean, it's all part of the deal. And, um, it was a great school, uh, for me. Uh, I didn't have another home to go home to. So you had trimesters. So you're there for three months and then you leave for a month and you're there three months and you leave for a month. So I would go back to the streets for a month and I would sleep on couches and floors and I had to ask permission to use a shower. I didn't have a home. I didn't have a bedroom to go home to. And um, so when I went back to school after any of those breaks, it was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I got my own bed. I got three meals a day. I got a shower. I don't got to ask permission to use. The teachers really cared. You know, they I had friends there, you know, the, over time you build. The problem is you get enough turnover that you don't make friends quickly, you know, because you know they're going to might be gone. You know, it's like, why would I make friends with someone that's going to be gone in a month? So it takes about a year before you start really right. making friends. But suffice it to say, you left there pretty changed. Yeah, yeah. I felt like I could, you know, conquer the world sort of thing. I, I left a ball of fire, basically. Um, and I made three goals there that I've basically been – I've spent the last 17 years accomplishing those goals. So I'll spend my whole life working on them. So, yeah, the, the school is – I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for that school. Um, but you have to want the change, and you have to want to take advantage of the situation. You know, it's like a, a blank canvas. You know, you can do as much as with it or as little with it as you want. Yeah. So, Well, we'll get I'll, – uh, I'll ask you about those, those three goals um, later, but I think it would be cool to jump, like, to, to present and just sort of skip sure. the middle for right now. And uh, why don't you tell me, because I think it's pretty remarkable that – like see where you were and and see what you're doing now tell me about the current uh research that you're doing well we'll be heading up to the northwest passage this summer uh well in like a month i guess and uh we did a couple of years of research with nasa i created this nonprofit organization after i got back from trip around the americas which was the third goal um, and uh we've mostly been focusing on climate research when the in sort of the high arctic way way north, as far north as you can get before you hit crazy ice, and um, plastic trash in the ocean, which has been a couple, there's a lot of plastic trash in the ocean, so we spent a couple of years on that one. Um, 
But really what I'm trying to do is not one-off research expeditions. What I'm trying to do is change the way the research is being conducted in the ocean by introducing a global fleet of research-ready sailboats. Uh, typical cost of a research vessel is 25000 a day. And because the technologies have gotten smaller and better, we can do research on a sailboat today we never could have done 20 years ago. So we can collect some of the same exact data for less than 10% of the cost. So it's just a sort of common sense, you know. It's uh, blending the old technology of a sailboat with new modern, especially when you integrate the fully autonomous aerial and underwater data-collecting robots, the drones, the, you know, underwater vehicles. Uh, sailboat is a great platform for that. So you can do research from the air, from the boat, and underwater simultaneously if you can incorporate all that in there and still do it at 10% of the cost. Yeah, I think I remember one of the early podcasts of yours that I listened. I was still kind of figuring out, like, who's this guy? It's funny just to think of how I pictured you, what you looked like in my head listening to those first ones. And you started talking about, uh, you know, sailboats for the future of, of research. And, you know, I kind of was like, I wasn't like quite on board. Uh, and, and then just to learn and, and, and see what kind of experience um, that you've had. But I remember you know, in future podcasts, you started breaking it down and, and, and you said like 10% of the cost, but I think those big research vessels are like 40,000 bucks a day. Yeah, and up in the Arctic, they're a lot more. So the average is 25 grand a day, but that includes like the Chesapeake Bay and stuff, you know? So the, up in the Arctic, they're closer to 40 or 50 grand a day, which you can, you know, adds up insanely. Basically what it means is what, what scientists have access to the millions of dollars they need to, to really charter these things out for like a month or two months to do a big project. Very, very few scientists. So what I really want to do is make research more accessible so scientists that don't have access to a huge amount of money can still go out there and collect important data to answer scientific questions. And science, like, scares people away. Like, we talk about this too long, like, nobody's going to listen. So that's why I had to change the name of the damn podcast, Ocean yeah. Research Project, to, to single-handed because – it was scaring people like people just don't give a shit about science and research for the most part well so. my audience they're very very high <laughs> so high intellect uh so i know you've done things like mapping the the seafloor up in some of the fjords around uh -huh. greenland um you just want to give a brief uh, explanation of why that's important i mean sure. and also i would have assumed that's something that had been done um already like they can mm -hmm. do that from a satellite or however they do it. So uh, edu yeah. educate me real quick. So basically, if you were to melt all the glaciers on Earth outside of Greenland and Antarctica, you'd have about a half a meter of sea level rise, about a foot and a half of sea level rise. If you melt Greenland, you have about 21 feet of sea level rise. And if you melt Antarctica, it's like 250. Um, so in the northern hemisphere, the Greenland ice cap is by far the biggest contributor potentially to sea level rise, and it's melting a lot faster than Antarctica is. So there is a warmer, saltier water column about 300 feet down that's coming up from the Atlantic and eating Greenland's glaciers from underneath. So what NASA needed us to do was to map the seafloor in the very far northwest extreme of Greenland where nobody has mapped it yet and, uh, and lower a probe a bunch of times that does temperature, depth, and salinity. So you lower the probe, it falls through the column, it records everything, and then you have like scientific verification that this warmer water is there and how warm is it and yada yada. And then the mapping of the seafloor is really more to try to find places where the warmer water can be hiding than it is to like make a new map, you know. So we did give the information to the Danish Hydrographic Office and apparently they're going to create a bunch of new charts uh, of the area using our data, which is neat. Wasn't really our plan, but sure, if they want to make some charts, that's great. Uh, I should have named some underwater feature, you know. I could have named something after Nicole and got some points or something. But um, 
But anyways, yeah, so that's the basics of it is uh, just working with NASA. It's a much bigger program. It's Ocean Melting Greenland, or OMG, which was like a joke by NASA when they did it. And um, <clears throat> it's a big program. They have planes fly in with these high-tech, like, radiation things that can determine the exact height of the ice cap every single year. Like, they keep flying it so they can see if it drops. A lot of people are involved. So we're really a small cog uh, involved in a much bigger machine. Yeah. Um, but it, it, nobody else could do what we did for the cost we did it at. You know, the other vessels were millions of bucks, and we did it for, you know, a, you know tens of thousands. But at any end, we didn't, you know, it cost us so much to do it, we basically broke even. So... <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure out some better funding strategies for future expeditions. But that's the hard part is getting funding. Nobody, you know, people don't really want to fund research. They fund outreach, you know. Yeah, and I, I know that you were uh, you were talking about plastic in the ocean uh, for quite a while, and it's kind of become a hot topic, you know, more recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's some other people working on it. One of the reasons I like, like your podcast is, uh, you're not not afraid to uh, to say what you think about some other projects that are going on, but you're also very reasonable, right? You're not trying to poo-poo on anybody. Um, I was listening to you talking about uh, Zeboyan Slat and the uh, mm-hmm. ocean ocean cleanup. I saw a headline the other day that they were um, that they were on the brink of ridding the ocean of plastics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe you want to quickly explain because I, I think your take on this is really important. Um, that there's not some quick solution out there and we don't need to change the, the, the bigger picture and, and how yeah. we're using um, plastics. Maybe you can explain that to people. Yeah. First off, he's got an incredibly good media team. And when today's media and the way that stories are presented uh, with the Internet, uh, with our short attention spans, is you need to have a headline that's over the top. So you often see these over-the-top headlines like, you know, like everything's about to be, like all the trash is about to be gone tomorrow sort of thing, or this is going to change. And it's just the strategy that the PR team uses, and they give it to the associate press, and then whoever wants the story picks it out of the associate press. And, uh, and it helps to have these crazy over-the-top titles. Uh, the, the long and short of it is this guy, what, this is what I'm confused about, really. So he wants to build these. It's been several designs. Initially, it was this robots that were going to clean up all the plastic trash in the ocean. He came up with this idea when he was a teenager. He got some award for it. It was a cool, innovative sort of thing. I'm glad people are thinking about this stuff. Somebody in England wrote an article about it. And the way that they wrote the article was as if this thing already existed and it was about to clean up everything you know, yesterday. And it was just an idea. It was never left the paper. And this went viral, like completely viral, because of this way it was written. Um, sounding like this, you know, like it was about to end this thing. And so that design never existed. It was redesigned several times and turned into a flotation system. It was supposed to be 100 kilometers long. So I reached out to him probably three, four years ago to some of the people, emailed back and forth, trying to get more details on this. And it was two 50-kilometer arms on this device uh, anchored to the seafloor, which is about 16,000 feet deep on average. And nobody has ever anchored anything that deep. And there's all sorts of issues with it, like uh, plastic, for instance, uh, the fish eat a lot of plastic, you know, and there are all sorts of fish are eating plastic, and there's a lot of issues around that. Fish congregate under anything that's floating in the ocean. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You can actually catch fish. Like if you want to catch a mahi-mahi uh, in the warmer climates, find something floating in the ocean and fish under it. I once caught a mahi under a dead sheep off the coast of Morocco, and a dead sheep is not that big, but it's big enough that things start to congregate underneath of it. So if you had this big device out there, you'd have millions, of, it's basically an artificial reef, millions and millions of fish, all this plastic is right above their head. 
You know, you got an issue of barnacles. It's going to get covered in barnacles like the next day. You know, it's going to take like two weeks for it to get covered in barnacles. They're not even talking about how to keep the barnacles off of it. And they made a 500-page feasibility report proving that this was going to work. And so this is where I get confused. Did they overlook these simple well, facts? And sorry to interrupt real quick. You were saying with the fish is that it would actually increase their consumption of plastics. Oh, yeah, because there's going to be a huge amount of them right above their head. There's going to be millions and millions and millions of fish. It, that what happens, and this has happened to me on a boat when I've, I've been had broken engines in the middle of the ocean and had no wind for weeks before, and you just bob around. The little fish hide up against the hull of your boat to get protection. Then the medium-sized fish come, and then the big fish come, and next thing you know, you got schools of tuna. you got all sorts of different fish you know, that congregate around the boat. And so, um, so anyways, they write this 500-page feasibility report with 20 engineers and all these PhDs proving that this will absolutely 100% work and it will clean up all the plastic trash in like five years or something. And, um, and they raised $30 million with this, uh, this uh, feasibility report. And so they put a small version of this in the North Sea, uh, I think it was last year, and the whole thing was destroyed in like a month because it's just the, the, the volatile nature of the ocean. You just can't anchor things out in the ocean. They're just going to get, you know, it's not that simple. So they've completely redesigned this thing to be one kilometer long and not to be anchored, to be free-floating. And it's just like, well, what the hell happened to your 500-page feasibility report and the $30 million you were raised? So the long and short of it is, in my opinion, is one of the reasons they're raising as much money as they are is they're essentially telling people you don't have to change your behavior. We're going to clean up. We're going to get a bunch of robots and collection devices. They're going to clean up all the plastic trash, and you don't have to change anything that you're doing. And really changing our behavior or changing the way that we're interacting with these one-time-use plastics in particular, because half the trash in the ocean is from one-time-use plastics, you know, things like straws and whatnot. So, uh, you know, we need to change the way we're interacting with this material, and that the battle is here on land. I mean, it won't even work in the Atlantic because you got all the seaweed. These things will collect all the sargassum seaweed, and that's a part of the ecosystem. There's a whole level of the, of the Atlantic. So that's why they never mention the Atlantic. You always hear they're always talking about the Pacific yeah. because they can't even use it in the Atlantic. So, so it, it seems really exciting because the status quo remains and we don't need to change anything and it's going to fix it. Uh, the, yeah. the other thing I was wondering is um, I had heard you mention that it wouldn't actually even clean up all the plastic well, because yeah. so much of it sinks. Yeah, that's the other part. Uh, only about 30% of the plastic's on the surface. So, and this was, um, this was a bit surprising and this took me a little while to accept, really. Uh, this Spanish... Uh, PhD guy had a took a boat around a sailboat around the world a big trip lots of scientists and they went all over the place and they worked with other people like uh, other data sets um, and uh, yeah basically they figured out 70% of it's missing and where else is it it's floating in the different water columns because some of it's you know 16,000 feet that's a lot of water column you know so it's floating it's on the bottom we have no idea what's on the bottom of the ocean. It's hard for us to get down there and look. You know, they say we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the bottom of the ocean. So, so yeah, it's it's not going to solve. It might get the stuff on the surface, but that's only a percentage uh, of what is really out there. So, Yeah, so, again, I mean, at least plastics is uh, something people are more aware of, and, and I think typically people start digging you know, and coming to mm -hmm. conclusions like you have and, and hopefully the um, a better answer, you know, comes from that and maybe it'll be uh, for the best. And I got to be case. careful myself because I get frustrated 
And I'll, you know, like I edit out half the stuff I said in that podcast because I want to, I don't want to be too, you know, I want to try to give people the, some benefit of the doubt and I don't want to just bash somebody, you know, who's trying to solve this problem. You know what I'm saying? But I, it's very frustrating for, for the, it's just, you know, it's just a relatively small group of people who are running these various nonprofits and there's nonprofits just dedicated to plastic trash. who have been doing it for 15, 20 years and everybody is struggling to raise even the smallest amounts of money and have someone else come in raising millions and millions of dollars off of what is basically bullshit, in my opinion, is just hugely frustrating. And then to see the media jump all over it. You know, they've got all of them now, CNN, BBC, New York Times, and they've got all those guys. And anytime they put out anything, all those guys will jump on it. And because they got the way it's written with their media machine, making it sound like over the top glorious, and the media just doesn't know any better. And I don't blame them for not knowing. You know, they don't understand the ocean, and they they make there's a lot of misconceptions with the ocean. So there's just a lot of misunderstanding. And uh, but it wouldn't be the first uh, high profile story that they that they've ran with that you know sounds better than it than yeah. it turns out to be. So it's frustrating for the yeah. for the rest of us because we're trying to fight the battle on land. We're not trying to fight the battle in the ocean. Once it's out in the ocean, it's gone. Yeah, and and you're not just some blowhard sitting sitting at home, you know, criticizing what someone else is doing. You know, you have you have a um, an experience based uh, opinion on it. And I think it's important. Um, yeah, to I put almost that died out there. out there once doing plastics research. Like yeah. <laughs> I spent hundreds of days in the ocean, living off of freeze dried food, battling storms. I've had all sorts of crazy shit happen in the pursuit of gathering this data with no salary and none of that shit. You know, so. I've lived in the ocean for hundreds of days, and there's just you get an understanding of what the ocean, what it really means to have something out there. It just can't, you know. And and it's I think it's important not to fight the battle from behind a desk. I think that outreach is very important. That's how basically the the the, the three steps in the process is somebody collects, does the research. Somebody promotes the education through the outreach, basically gets the public aware of it, and then you have policy change, change the laws, you know, but it all starts with research. And it's incredibly difficult to get the funding for research, and most nonprofits do outreach and education. Almost every marine nonprofit out there is an outreach education organization. But I would rather fight it. I don't want to fight it from behind a desk. I want to be out on the front lines, you know. And so, um, but it's hard, you know. It's just, just there are no grants for what we're doing. Because grants come from the National Science Foundation, and they come from NOAA. And even if you have a PhD and work for a university, you have like a 10% chance of getting that funding. And so, I mean, we're not going to get it. And so where the hell are we going to get the funding then? You know, nobody, not nobody. I mean, I say that, and I shouldn't say that. But very few people, people get bored with research. People get bored with science, and they don't want to hear about it uh, for the most part. And so it's just hard to raise money. You know, it's different if I show you a picture of a dolphin with, like, plastic wrapped around its head or something, you know, but I don't like taking those tactics either, you know, so I I don't know. It's, yeah, da- data point collection or data yeah. collection isn't that, isn't That's that sexy. That's not sexy. Yeah, it's, yeah, data collection. Yeah, right. It's mapping the seafloor or whatever. I mean, it's hard to – it's uh, – but it's it's critical. The, the, the few nonprofits that do do research focus on species, like Save the Whales yeah. or, or Polar Bears or something that – they know they can raise money. If I show you a picture of a skinny polar bear that brings, you know, that might open up your, your wallet through your emotions, you know. And a lot of people use emotions to open up the wallet. I'm trying to use, I don't know, common sense, I guess. I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to use the emotional route. Um, but it's very effective. So, Yeah, marketing, marketing seems to be a, a bigger part of the battle than, than I, I wish it were in many ways. It's all about um, marketing. 
yeah. to be honest. That's and I hate to say it, but it really is. The success of a nonprofit is all about marketing. More than what it's more it, what you do is less important than how you talk about what you do. And that's something I learned fairly early on and was quite disappointed. You know, I had misconceptions myself going into this whole nonprofit thing. But it's not about what you do. It's about how you talk about what you do. So. Unless it's almost dying at sea. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you've got lots of those, yeah, lots of those stories. Uh, t tell me how how'd you get into the ocean in the first place. Um, I know when you were younger, you, you were uh, into the explorers and, and mm -hmm. reading a lot about them. Uh, and so you always, obviously always had some desire to get out there and, and see stuff, see places. Mm -hmm. uh, but then how did you get introduced to, to sailing? Um, I do know the story of your, your first day on your first sailboat. You almost lost it. Uh, so you clearly started with close to no knowledge. Uh, you know, why did you get out there in the first place, and what were your plans? Um, you know, my dad, my dad's in town. He's just out getting some breakfast. He said he told me something when I was a kid that we were walking around, and there's some big blue sailboat, and I told him one day I'm going to have one of those. I don't remember saying that. He just told it to me yesterday. I'm like, really? I said that? So basically, <clears throat> I guess when I, we didn't grow up sailing. None of my family had sailboat. I never went sailing ever, you know, when I was a kid. Um, but at one point at Eagle Rock, I was sitting there in the library and flipping through an atlas. And really, I was looking at that biking trip through Southeast Asia. But I used to just look at atlases a lot. I don't know. I, I find geography interesting, and I want to know where the countries are located and whatever else. So... And I just realized that, you know, uh, most of the, like 80% of the countries are connected by the ocean. And if you get good enough at sailing, you show up to these countries, well, you don't need a hotel because you got your bed. You don't need to go out to eat because you got your kitchen. You can anchor for free. It's an extraordinarily inexpensive way to go travel and see the world. Now you got to deal with the ocean and all the, the problems that the ocean might have. But that's like icing on the cake for me because that's like the fun. I always loved the wilderness. You know, I've always loved the, the whatever, mountains, forests, hiking, and all that stuff. And I did start off uh, doing hiking trip, you know, two, three, four-month hiking trips and stuff uh, before I was doing sailing. But the ocean is the ultimate wilderness. You know, I mean, you can't even stand on it. At least in the forest, you can freaking stand up, you know. And the ocean, and there's like sharks and shit rolling around. There's no sharks hiding in the dirt in the forest that might jump out and grab you. So I don't know. It just seemed like a, a, sort of the ultimate wilderness and a, and you know an ultimate challenge or something. Yeah. So uh, without without your tools and your and your brain, like you're you're done immediately in the ocean. Whereas you could kind of maybe hopefully figure it out uh, on land. Yeah, if you fall overboard and you get like a lung or just swimming, like you've been to the beach, you're swimming around, you get a lung full of salt water. Like all of a sudden you're like ah, 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 you're like ready to sink right there. You know, so it, it takes very little time for us. If you jump off the boat in the middle of the ocean, you're not going to live for very long, you know, so. Uh, and so I know you, uh, it was like this Coronado 25. Yeah. You and your girlfriend went and bought. It was basically a pile yeah. and took it out and almost wrecked it. Uh, wh where did you go from there? Um, and what was the, what was the plan and when was the first time that you that you like felt like a sailor or that you, that you felt like you were really doing it? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, I started off without much knowledge and I started off on a little small piece of junk boat from the 60s. Like you're saying, this Coronado 25 you could buy for 
I, I bought it for two grand. I should have bought it for 200, you know, like it was a total piece of junk and everything was, the sales were 30 years old. The outboard was broken. But <clears throat> initially I did a lot of ICW, Intercoastal Waterway. I didn't really start jumping out into the ocean till Georgia. Um, now there's some sailing you can do in North Carolina. And I spent a few weeks in the Chesapeake Bay sailing around, sort of learning uh, how to do it. And uh, the, the intercoastal can be addictive because people just, oh, you know, let's do another 50 miles in the intercoastal. But it sucks. Intercoastal waterways, there's red and green markers that mark the channel. And it's 10 hours a day of red, green, red, green. It's like driving down the highway really, really slowly. And uh, so and so real quick, this is the in the southeast. It's basically this big sandbar and everything west of that sort of protected water. Is that the intercoastal waterway? Well, the intercoastal waterway, waterway is um, man-made, and it starts in Norfolk, and it goes down to Miami. And so it, um, and it still covers quite a bit, Virginia to, to the bottom of Florida. And it's a, it's a series of rivers, lakes, sounds that are connected by man-made canals, basically. So sometimes you're in, like, uh, the Alligator Channel or something, or the Alligator River or Pungo Sound, or I don't know, there's all these, but they basically have interconnected all these. So what you can do is you can go from Virginia to Miami without ever going out in the ocean. And, um, and you could do it in a canoe. I mean, it's not, you know, there's some places that have strong currents, but whatever, you know. Wow, I never even realized that was man-made, so yeah. it's all, all connected. Yep, it's all connected with man-made, you know, various things. And there used to be one going north, um, all the way up to New York. But we let it silt over. Like after World War II, we stopped dredging it. So now it's like three feet deep. But there is another one heading north. Nobody uses it. It's too shallow. Yeah. And, and so you, uh, if I'm correct, you kind of bounced around. And you were in um, maybe the Caribbean living for a yeah, while. Uh, and then just decided to <coughs> head across the Atlantic and have a good old. A good old <coughs> the Caribbean was on the way back from the Atlantic. <coughs> I... Um, I bought that. I, I, I lost that Coronado in hurricanes. 2004, uh, Florida got hit by four of them, and I got three of them. So Charlie, Francis, and then Gene were the three I got. And then Ivan hit my boat I was going to buy next <laughs> so, and wrecked that boat. But um, and, I and did you have a home through all this, or you were just on the boat? That was your Yeah, the everything. boat was more or less my home. <clears throat> I was still a little bit in and out of Columbus at this time. Um, I hadn't completely uh, left Ohio, so I was still making money up there. So, um, but I was hustling, so I wasn't making money in any real good way. But uh, I hadn't got it out of my system all the way, I guess. But um, that was near the end of that era. Really, I got into sailing and and you know put all that behind me, you know, once and for all and forever sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so I had that boat, and I spent a lot of time living on it. And my girlfriend had, was up in Cleveland. You know, she sailed with me, but she would go back to Ohio a lot. And um, then I got a 26 Pearson. Then I got the 323 Pearson, which is when I got hit by Ivan. And that's 32-footer. I sailed across the Atlantic. So I sailed over to Europe. I was trying. I left from the, the bay trying to get to Iceland. And I wound up in Maine at first because a hurricane named Bertha was coming. I didn't want to mess around with Big Bertha, you know. So I, I hid in Maine. And then... Um, I sailed going to Iceland, and I wound up in England. So, but it wasn't navigation. It was I got hit by a really big tropical storm, and by the time and I left late, and by the time it was done, I realized I could get to Iceland, but I'll never get back before the weather deteriorates. Like I'll never have time to see the place. 
So I just continued on to, to England and spent some spent about a year. I, I, sh- I left with like 1500 bucks, so I didn't have enough money to do the trip. So I did some like drywall work in England. It was all under the table. I helped some guy uh, move rocks in Spain. He was building like some castle or something, and I was the guy moving the rocks. So you just do whatever you can to make a few bucks, and you hang out with the locals and, you know, whatever, which is really nice. And then I spent six months in West Africa um, going up various rivers, you know, hundreds of miles up the Gambia River and messing about in Senegal and in Morocco and things like that. But when I left Gambia, I don't know, I had like 14 bucks or 20 bucks. I had like next to nothing. Um, so when I showed up in the Caribbean, I showed up in Antigua, and uh, I could, you know, you could barely buy a cheeseburger with the amount of money I had. So I had to basically go straight to the U.S. Virgin Islands because I could get a job without a work visa. And for the first, like, month I was there, I was still living off of my transatlantic food, which was Gambian, like, pasta and rice. I mean, it was absolute basic-ass shit. But it took a while for me to start getting paychecks, you know, to find a job and get paychecks and get myself where I could go to the grocery store and buy, like, fresh meat and stuff, you know. So, um, so yeah, I just worked in the Caribbean and the Virgins, which is okay. I'm not, I don't know, St. Thomas is all right, Um were you uh, so? Were you alone? Say the six months you spent basically sailing around uh, Western Africa um, was it was just you and and how? I mean, were you just uh, going? You know, where wherever yeah wh- wherever you saw? Did you have any master plan? Yes, I had a loose plan, you know, but not really. I was sort of up for whatever, you know. I didn't, and it's best to be that way when you're sailing and cruising, not to have too rigid of a schedule. And sort of, you know, um, but I, I sailed down to Senegal and I was there for a little while and I met this guy, Yanni, who is riding a bicycle alone from Berlin to South Africa. Uh, and he wanted to get there for the uh, World Cup, which was in South Africa that year. And that's a long ass ride. I mean, Europe's one thing. But you got to go through the entire African continent north to south. So I met him right after the Sahara Desert and he lost like, I don't know, 30 pounds in the Sahara Desert or something crazy. And he was this German guy. This very, you know, very atypical blonde, you know, six foot four, blonde hair, blue eyed German guy. And um, he was the biggest pacifist I think I ever met. But he was the last guy you'd ever want to fight in a war because you could literally drop a, you know, a rock on his foot and he wouldn't say ow. You know, like he was tough as nails. And at one point he got worms in his feet and I tried to cut the worms out of his feet. And um, he didn't budge. Like I was freaking out about it. He wasn't freaking out at all, which was but um, that was the Guiana worm, which I just read recently. They've wiped out of most of Africa. So he must have been near the end of the Guiana worm in Senegal because it's only in like three or four countries now. Um, Is that the hookworm that they now like will even like sell you some hookworm to try to treat different ailments? This is a weird one. The Guiana worm, you get it through uh, flea bites. So I think he got it where I met him because he was walking around barefoot and there was a lot of cats. There were like feral cats everywhere. And... Um, and uh, it only lives in your legs, the Guiana worm, and it can get up to like uh, three feet long, and it can get to the point where they have to chop your legs off. Basically, if, they, if you don't treat it, that's what happens. It grows to about three feet, and eventually they'll have to cut your leg off, um, or you get like gangrene, or I don't know. Yeah. So, um, and it was weird with him. We could see the worm under his skin, about you know maybe three, four inches long. And it would, you know, it made like a, a bump in his skin. You could clearly see where it was. And in the daytime, it never moved. And in the morning, he would wake up and it would be in a different place on his foot or his ankle or something. And there was a red trail behind it. Like it made like a red trail where it like yeah. ate, yeah, its path. And it was always freaking. And I, like I was freaking out looking at it. Like how do you not freaking out, Yanni, you know? And, uh, but Yanni just, you know, and then I, like I say, I tried to cut it out of his foot. 
and it just made it worse. I think I cut it in half because then he had two worms, and uh, and it got infected because we're in the jungles of like Gambia, yeah. sailing a boat up in the jungle, and so his foot blows up. He couldn't even put his shoe on anymore. And there's this French kid, Bruno, who we picked up last minute. Well, I thought was friends with Yanni, but I guess wasn't. And so they didn't get along well at all. Yanni ended up throwing him overboard at one point in the Gambia River because he refused to go into town to help me get food. The towns in Gambia, you're like getting like uh, maybe you get potatoes in one village or eggs in another. You never crack. You always crack eggs individually one at a time because there are a lot of them are rotten, you know. So you got to like be careful. And, and there's just not much. Maybe you get onions in one village. They're little mud hut villages, you know. But Bruno refused to, it was his turn to go with me to find food, and he refused to do it, and Yanni's foot was all big. And Bruno was just, I don't know, he was a young French kid who I think his mom spoiled him or something. Nice kid, but just, I don't know, I felt like his parents or something half the time. So he spent all of his money. I kicked him off the boat. I purposely didn't get him enough to get to where he needed to go. I gave him like two-thirds of the money he needed, so he had to figure his shit out for himself. You yeah, know? Help, help him grow up a yeah. little. But, yeah. So, so uh, I imagine they don't get a whole lot of sailboats up the Gambian <clears throat> River, especially yeah. uh, Americans that are just coming over for a look. Uh, what, what was it like up there, and what, what kinds of things did you do? Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Like if, they, if there was a lot of people going there, it would ruin it, I think. Um, a little bit like Ireland, but in a different way. Like, there's parts of Ireland that get so many tourists and they're so used to it that they treat tourists. And, oh, Caribbean is even worse. St. Thomas, a lot of them, they don't give a shit. Like, they're not going to treat you nice because, you know, they're just so used to, like, the never-ending stream of tourists. Um, Gambia, because so few people go there, they don't – there hasn't been a culture of stealing stuff off sailboats, even though they're completely broke. Like, they're so poor they can't get uh, shoes for their kids' feet, you know. I mean, they're, they're completely poor. Um, but I never locked my boat once. I never had any issues with anybody. Um, now <clears throat> people will try to scam you a bit, like, especially near the coast where there is some tourism, like you can tell the areas that get tourism because then people, there are like street people who try to scam you for something. But once you get up the river, um, all that disappears and everybody is super inviting and, you know, brings you back to the family and you drink this palm wine, which is like a vinegar tasting, uh, fermented alcohol thing from the palm trees which is really hard to get used to but then but anyway it's it's all super you know everyone was super friendly and super nice there's malaria mosquitoes you got to be careful of um and they got these bugs that lay air, eggs in your underwear and if you put your underwear on the larvae like burrows into your skin so you can't let your like clothing hang outside or anything yeah. but uh, yeah but it, it was great it was a highlight of the trip i mean the thing is europe I mean, Europe, it's Western culture. I mean, they might speak French or whatever else, but, I mean, they're basically similar to us. I mean, it's very similar. And um, for the most part, it's a bunch of white people and, and whatnot. And I don't know. It's just like I can see that in the United States. Like, I can eat a baguette and some brie and, and, and hang out with white people here. I don't know. It's nice to immerse yourself in other cultures, especially completely different cultures. So, yeah, especially where, where you're probably learning. I mean, it's new stuff everywhere you go. Yeah. Uh, but what's it like uh, navigating up a river? It seems like it would be extremely difficult. In yeah, there wasn't charts, really. I mean, they had really basic ones, but there there just wasn't much information. And, of course, the water's not clear. You can't see the bottom. Uh, I didn't have to. There was one place I, that I ran aground. It was called, had some horribly sounding name, like, I don't know, hell, it wasn't Hell's Gate. It was Hell's, something having to do with Hell. And it was just one stretch of the river, and uh, I ran aground there. There's like a narrow channel that is not marked, 
and you have no idea where it is, and you got to basically find it. Um, and it's on the bend of the river closer to the inside of the bend. I guess that's where – and then the outside of the bend pushed all the silt. But for the most part, I went up a bunch of random creeks too. I went up to Bintang Creek like 50 miles, and that was just a little creek um, until it got – you know. but I had a relatively shallow draft. My boat was only about four and a half feet deep. So if I had a six-and-a-half-foot draft, I don't know if I would have been able to make it up there because there was times I was in six feet of water or five-and-a-half feet of water. You know, and there's also nets they put across the entire damn thing, yeah. and you there's nothing to see them. They're like hiding. There's a couple of buoys, but if you don't know what to look for, so I sailed right into nets a couple times, and you're like jumping overboard with a knife, trying to cut a net off your propeller in the middle of the Gambia River. There's like snakes and freaking you know all sorts of crazy animals, hippopotamuses, and I don't know whatever else. So, but we swam in it quite a bit too. I mean, we would jump over and swim around with the kids. You know, like some little African kids are swimming around in there. Yeah. They, that probably uh, helps to yeah. see other people. <laughs> I was like, well, shit, if their kid's going to do it, I'm not going to be scared. So, yeah. but uh, wow, that sounds, yeah, it sounds like just an awesome adventure. Uh, you, so you've run aground. Like, I don't know how many stories I've heard of you running aground, but clearly it just happens. Yeah. And it happens yeah. to the inexperienced and the best of the best. And uh, I, I, you even told one story where you ran aground another on uh, top of another ship. <laughs> it oh, was yeah, like that a was sunken boat yeah. where you shouldn't have run aground, but because there was a sunk boat, you ended up on top of it. Um, but uh, so I wonder, what do you think for people that are just, you know, want to go out there and, and get experience in sailing where so much can go wrong? Like, I mean, it can right. be catastrophic, um, but you also have to learn through experience. Like, for example, right. you're, you're gonna run aground at some point. Um, what, uh, you know, you want to encourage people to go for it, but what, what kind of a balance, um, can you, can you hope for? Yeah. You got to take a deep breath. You know what I'm saying? You find yourself in these different circumstances. It's can be easy to freak out, um, depending on what it is. Um, and freaking out is just going to make it worse. Whatever, regardless, you know, either you're going to, maybe you're running aground, you're not freaked out, you're going to die, but maybe you're being an asshole to your crew who might be your wife or girlfriend, you know? So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways freaking out can happen, but you know, part of it is you got to realize what you're getting yourself into before you go out there. <clears throat> We're not supposed to be out there. It is a difficult and dangerous place. I certainly wouldn't advise anybody to go sailing alone across an ocean as like their beginning of sailing. Uh, I sailed the entire Eastern seaboard of the United States single-handed uh, before I did my first single-handed transatlantic. So you do want to work your way up to it. But, you know, it's we're all going to make mistakes. And you're going to make mistakes in all sorts of aspects of life, you know. So, uh, you know, you've got to understand that going into it and understand it. I don't, it's usually not as bad as you think. and But you might find yourself, and there, this is the hard one, you might find yourself, if it does get bad, in a situation where you realize I might die today. And, like, I might die in the next 30 minutes, you know. And if it's the first time you've ever had that thought – like, oh, my God, I might die today. Some people really flip out, you know, and they become self-preserving and or whatever it is, you know, uh, pulling out the emergency devices and come save me, whatever. You know, just you got to – if you accept the environment, I think, before you go out there and accept the dangers before you go out there, you're just going to be less likely to freak out if situations really do go bad. And um, the boat can take more than the captain in most cases. So, um yeah, but you want to, I don't know, you want to start slow. It's a beautiful, you know, the ocean's a beautiful place. The ocean's also a son of a bitch. Um, but you have to like the challenge. And if you like a good challenge, it's hard to beat the ocean. You know, it's always moving around underneath you. Um, you know, it's, you can have mountains like waves and you can have flat calm. 
You know, mountains don't move. I mean, maybe get an avalanche, but you're not going to go from flat, calm to mountains because of the wind, uh, you know, in the forest or something. So, but yeah, I don't know. It's, um, you have to, you, you have to want to do it ultimately. And, uh, you, and don't try to drag your spouse or your friend along with you if they really don't want to do it. Because, um, and a good way to find out, like if you wanted to do it with a, a, somebody you liked, if you like, if as a guy, if I want to find a girl to go sailing with me and I'm single, like find a girl who likes backpacking. I'm not saying camping like in a car, but like proper backpacking and stuff like that. And then, you know, she can go a few days without taking a shower. It's not a big deal. She can eat some canned food. And, if you, you know, it's really easy to transfer over to the ocean in that case because uh, the boat carries your weight. You know, you don't have to carry your weight up a mountain. The boat carries it for you. So in some ways it's easier, but, but I don't know. And uh, then there's the whole conversation about companionship and is that important? And maybe you want the solitude. Maybe you want to be single-handed um, because the solitude you experience in the ocean is unlike anything else on earth, I, I guess. Maybe you can find it in the woods, but even in the woods, I don't know. I don't think you can find it the same because in the woods, you got all that weight on your back. You're hiking up mountains and you're really worn out. And you can be almost zombie mode, you know. You've, you've experienced that where you push your body hard and you get into this focus and this zone. And when you're in the ocean, you're really not pushing yourself that hard because you're just sitting on this boat. And so you, you can strip away everything from your life, like any relationship things, job things, your cell phone, your email, social media, everything disappears. And so you can focus on whatever thought for days. You can spend three days just thinking about, I don't know, some random thing like disease. Why does disease exist? You know, some weird shit, you know, and you can spend three days just thinking about that yeah. unimpeded by all the distractions of normal life. Um, yeah. When I, when I raced uh, my bike across the U S it was, you know, 12 days and it, and it, it felt like it did so much, you know, for me mentally and you have the time to chew over things and a lot bubbles up from personal life and whatever else. But now you're talking on a scale of, you know, your, your biggest trip, um, at least as far as, um, sailing, uh, I don't know, sailing history goes, mm -hmm. you know, it was what, 309 days. So yeah. there you really yeah can think about something for right. probably, you know, weeks and you're just, right. just, uh, cutting in a little bit to your, your time at sea. Um, but why don't you give, uh, you talk a lot about this trip on your current podcast, single handed, uh, sailing. So I won't make you go through the stories cause I think people should go, go listen to them there Sure. in full form. And there's just a lot, a lot of good and, um, you know, some terrifying and, and a lot of humor and all of that. But why don't you just briefly explain the concept, uh, of what it is and, um, maybe a little bit about why nobody had ever done this before. Um, so I, I, am the first person to do a nonstop single-handed circumnavigation of the Americas. And what that means in my case is I left out of the Chesapeake Bay alone on a sailboat. Nonstop means nonstop. You can't drop an anchor. You can't connect anything that's connected to the ground. You yourself cannot run aground. You have to remain a vessel underway according to the U S coast guard standard of a vessel underway. I left out of the Chesapeake Bay. You sail North between Canada and Greenland. You turn left going through the Northwest passage, which is the Canadian Arctic archipelago. And then you pop out above Alaska. So you go around the state of Alaska. You go down the Pacific around the bottom of South America, which is Cape Horn, and then back to the Chesapeake Bay. It is just that simple, folks. Uh, so it was 27,077 miles, and it took me 309 days to, to do this. Um, now, I think the reason why nobody had done it, and this is also the reason it was easy for me to figure out that I was the first, um, is because of the Northwest Passage. The, the Northwest Passage 
is um, steeped in the history of exploration. Um, a lot of it, though, is terrible. A lot of people died up there. They had a TV show on AMC called The Terror recently that goes into the Franklin Expedition where 129 guys get crushed in the ice and die. Oh, they had some stupid spirit polar bear thing that kind of screwed it up for me. But the actual story itself is, you know, it's the good visuals, a good understanding of sort of what they went through. Um, so only two people had gone through, including myself, had gone through the Northwest Passage alone and nonstop. And the other guy went to New Zealand. So it was pretty easy to figure out, you know, that, that part. But because the Northwest Passage is typically so icy, because it has such a history of people getting crushed in the ice and dying up there, um, nobody, I don't know, I, I'm, I can't believe in my mind that I'm the first person to, to think about doing it. You know, I'm sure other people thought about doing this this trip. I was just the first person to actually do it, you know, but I doubt I was the first person to think about sailing around the Americas nonstop, single-handed. Um, but that's like with anything, you know. Yeah. A lot. So just just for uh, you know, people to wrap their head around it, the I mean, the Northwest Passage is obviously an extremely dangerous place to be, um, but also the rest of the Americas uh, obviously have their own um, regions of, you know, the famous horn and, and going around that but uh you're also it's not like you're hugging the, sh the coastline here no. you know as you come down uh, the west coast of u.s for example you know how far offshore are you so yeah i was trying to stay about 800 miles offshore um and i was doing okay with that coming down like california coast because there's a Humboldt current i was really trying to stay in that and it's pretty far offshore and um but as you get further south, you know, like you're dealing with all this cold, wet, nasty shit, you know, because after Northwest Passage, you have to sail the entire Bering Sea north to south. And the Bering Sea is a nasty place. Then you pop out in the Gulf of Alaska. Now it's the fall. That's a nasty place. So eventually you're at 40 degrees, 35, 30. You're going south. It's warming up. You're drying out. You know, everything's getting better. And then around 25, you hit the easterly trades which I had to go into. They were going the wrong way. And those easterly trade winds, even though I, I pointed the boat as close to the wind as I could get it, it's a sailboat, so it won't go any direction like a powerboat. You got to deal with whatever the wind is. And uh, I ended up getting blown so far across the Pacific Ocean. At one point, I was 200 miles closer to New Zealand than I was to Cape Horn. So I was blown like halfway across the entire damn Pacific Ocean. I went right by the Pitcairn Islands, which are part of like Micronesia or something, you know? And um, now a bigger boat would be able to point better, would not have that issue. But, yeah, I got blown across. So there was times where I was literally in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, and then coming up the Atlantic, I went way over by South Georgia Island, about 350 miles from it. Uh, I made my easting in the westerlies, which just means I, I stayed south. And I made, uh, while the wind was blowing that way, I let it, it and then I, I went straight north um, up to the Recife, which is the part of Brazil that sticks out. So I didn't follow the coast there either. I went out into the middle of the South Atlantic, and I went right up the middle of the South Atlantic, basically. But the safer you are from land, typically, or the further you are from land, the safer you are. And it's sort of counterintuitive because, for the most part, it's not the ocean that's going to get you. It's the sharp, pointy things that surround the ocean, you know, the reefs, the rocks, and the currents. You get a lot of current around land, and when you have wind and a current oppose each other, you get insanely dangerous uh, conditions. So the deeper the water also, the round, more rounded the waves are. So really in a storm, you want to be as far as possible from land, and you'll have the best seas and the best options for be battling the storm. 
but most people think stay near land, you know? Yeah. So an experienced sailor would probably, he'd start getting uh, anxious and worried as he's getting closer to, to a, a coast. And it, I suppose, you know, if you're off the coast of Chile and you have a, you know, strong westerly and, and something happens on your, on your vessel, I mean, you're then at the mercy of, of a rocky shoreline and, yeah. and the wind. Yeah, land is not my friend. Land was my, I wouldn't say it was my enemy either, but it certainly wasn't my friend. And I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I wanted land. I didn't want it on my horizon. You know, get that shit off my horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it anywhere near it, you know. So so, from, for, so for someone who's never experienced it, though, I mean, my inner coward starts trembling the moment I just think about being out there and, mm-hmm. and, and dropping over the, the horizon. Uh, what, is it, what is it like to be um, so alone and have nothing but you know hundreds of miles of ocean around you um and what uh is it uh, what's her name ellen MacArthur? is that yeah she's uh she's done some records single yeah. sailing a speed record she's a hell of a sailor she's probably the best female sailor on earth right now at some point i heard her talk about you know the closest humans to her at a certain point were, were those on the international space station you know which just <laughs> <Yeah>. gives some <laughs> sense of of not just the loneliness but um you know, you're purely dependent on yourself and, um, and of course, your, your seaworthiness of, of you and your sailboat. Um, but, but what is it like? I imagine in a storm, maybe you just focus on the task at hand. But, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I'm on an airplane and I'm watching a movie and then we hit some turbulence, like that moment of getting pulled out of the film and realizing oh shit i'm still in this tin can and the Mm -hmm. it seems like on a sailboat way out there it it that times you know a lot many factors of of worse um what was it like the first time you did it and and uh is it as bad as it seems (laughs) well yeah well first off ella MacArthur has done a guy's a really good ted talk so and she's way more articulate than i am she's like amazingly articulate so it's she's had some really good stuff if you want to see more about her uh my first my first single-handed trip, I actually failed. I had to try it twice. I made it out the first day, and, and I actually got seasick. The only time I've ever gotten seasick. Puked all over my wind vane. Uh, I had a giant glass thing of spaghetti sauce, two of them, that broke all over the inside of my boat. I wasn't going to turn around until I opened up my hatch, and I looked down, and spaghetti sauce was freaking everywhere. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, you know? And so um, the ocean doesn't feel, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel that big to me when I'm out there. Like, I understand that... I can, you can see about three miles from your boat. That's about as far as you can see. And if I were to go three miles, I'd, have, I'd see it would be another three miles with no land. And another, you know, it's almost endless uh, uh, horizon. But it, I, maybe it's just because I've accepted it for what it is. But it, um, it doesn't feel, it feels weird to me that it doesn't feel bigger. That it, you know, that, that it feels relatively, I don't know, like I have to remind myself that I'm in the middle of the ocean and what that really means. Like if you could get a satellite image and draw it out into outer space, it'd be like, holy shit, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But it just doesn't feel that way when I'm out there. But, you know, you, you live in the ocean. Like when I've sailed alone across the Atlantic the first time, I was a visitor. I was a guest. I was there for 34 days. It's a long time to visit. But I was still a visitor. And the second time, it took me 28 days to get from West Africa to the Caribbean. And uh, it was the same sort of thing. When I went around the Americas, the ocean became my home. I was no longer a visitor out there. The ocean was my home, and land stopped being my home. It stopped being my friend. It stopped being a good thing. It was, became a bad thing. Land was what I wanted to avoid at all costs in as much distance as I could. So 
I guess it's just a totally different perspective. You want to be in the middle of the ocean. But, you know, as far as, like, the first oh shit moments, like the first big storm alone in the ocean sort of thing, um, I did fairly well. I put out a drogue, and I made it through, uh, you know, uh, after I put out the drogue, everything got a lot calmer. It's like a little thing you drag behind the boat to slow it down when you're surfing down giant waves. Um, but, you know, I guess I just – I had accepted – the environment I was putting myself into, I understood, you know, that it was going to be hard and that I, you know, I might die. And I had made peace with that. And, um, and so, and especially with the trip around the Americas, I mean, that's, it's an incredibly liberating thing to really make peace with, with drowning in this case. Uh, you got to be specific. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounded like you and, and, uh, is Dave Becky, Becky is the yeah, Don Becky, Don Becky, mm-hmm. um, were maybe the only two people that, thought you could do it uh at all i mean pretty much sounds like everybody else either thought it was a total suicide trip or um or you wouldn't make it far enough to 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 call it trying at all um so what in hindsight even i mean i think it's maybe different when you're caught up in the moment and you're Mm -hmm. just headed out and you're maybe you seem like you were pretty experienced but i'm sure there still had to be a lot that you were naive about oh yeah um like what? What do you think your your odds were of making that successfully? I figured it was fifty fifty. Sort of flip a coin, you live, and flip a coin, you die, sort of thing. So, yeah. I mean, I, but you could all say about everyone. I mean, probably the Northwest Passage was fifty fifty, and Cape Horn was fifty fifty, and <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, the odds weren't probably in my favor. I don't know. I figured it was at least fifty fifty chance, which is good enough for me. So I think after you rounded the horn or soon after your engine failed, right? It never started yeah, again. Yeah, it broke in the Pacific, but I didn't realize till I got to the Atlantic. So when I was curious, uh, there's there's a really great documentary on, on that uh, trip and more about your story, uh, Red Dot in the Ocean, uh, which everybody uh, should check out. I saw it on Amazon Prime. and Yeah, you, you can see it on PBS it for free, too. There's okay. a PBS version. So just Google Red Dot. Cool. It's it's incredible and, and really does a better job of any um, quick recap could do. But um, I was struck when, when you're in, because I, I knew the story before watching that. And I recall you're, you're sailing, I think maybe you're still in Baffin Bay or, or beyond. And it's, you know, you're talking about, I think like 30 knot winds, but it's still foggy. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like the fog clears when it's windy there because right. there's just more fog. Um, and when that finally cleared after, say, three days of, of um, you know, pretty strong winds and um, sailing, the fog lifts and you're surrounded by icebergs that you've mm-hmm. basically been dodging without knowing you're dodging for, yeah. for three days or so. And then, and then the winds die and you motor a good portion of the way across the mm-hmm. Northwest Passage. Um, so what, what would have happened if your engine, because you didn't put that many hours on your engine probably the whole trip um had died while you were up there what was i mean i don't think you had you didn't have a heater on the boat no I didn't you had a little heater. bit um that that sort of emanated from the engine while it was running mm-hmm. doesn't look like you probably had arctic gear of any kind uh, i if, forgot to bring pants <laughs> i didn't realize so i left i mean literally like i left and i'm like oh my god i have like two pairs of pants and that's it so when i was in the arctic i was wearing all my clothing especially the pants. And one time I got hit by a wave and everything was soaked and I had nothing dry to put on. So I just had to sit there naked with like my pants drying in, you know, 40 degree, 30 degree weather, which doesn't dry very well. You just got to wear and, it. And you're saying 50, 50 <laughs> odds. I'm thinking worse. Well, I'm probably. thinking worse odds. Yeah. But if your, if your engine quit, say while you were up there, I mean, is you're dead. You're not, nobody's coming. 
Yeah. There's nothing, nothing good's going to happen. You're just going to have to wait until you freeze to death. Is that basically it? Yeah. I mean, if it's, I don't know they, you wouldn't want to wind up in a situation. I, there was a 600 mile stretch that I had to motor, uh, where the wind died for a long time. And it was also an area where a lot of the ice is, and this is where like Franklin got crushed in the ice and everyone died. It was all that sort of that general part of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, if the engine broke, broke. I mean, I'd do my best to continue on under sail. Um, I I can fix some problems. It depends on what the problem is. I might have been able to fix it. Um, you might have focused on t- trying to fix it, and when the engine did die, you just you were sailing anyways. Yeah, it would have been really bad. I would have had to get towed. Um, there is a Coast Guard cutter up there, but yeah, it's a it's. It would have been. You really do want to make sure you got a uh, well, you know, a, as good of an engine as you can. Problem around here is it was just a joke of a trip, like trying to get sponsorship and trying to get people to work on it. Like there's a guy in town, Vosberry, who's the best Volvo Penta. That's what I had, the engine. But guy in town, he's notorious. You know, I could never get him to come over and look at my boat because he was super busy and nobody took the trip very seriously. So it's like I couldn't even get a mechanic to come and look at my damn engine before I left. I scheduled it a bunch of times, but he never show up. And yeah, so you you had if if the the um, sort of recap of of like budget for this trip, which is one of the most epic sailing voyages really of all time. I mean, it's up there mm-hmm. I, as in my limited knowledge, but I think that sounds like what the feat was. With a, a gifted boat, which was 1969 or 71, 71 Alban Vega, 27 foot, which you also you didn't even realize you set a, a world record for the smallest vessel ever through the Northwest Passage. And you had uh, about seventy five hundred dollars total spent on this entire expedition. Well, you could get right? the boat for about five grand. But like we said, it was it was a trade. Somebody traded us um, uh, for a little hunter. So they got a little like clean 23 foot hunter out of it and we got the album vega uh, which we don't talk about much but there wasn't it wasn't like somebody just donated it out of the kindness of their heart they they got another boat for it um in all yeah there wasn't much money that went into that um uh part of the trip and like i say you could buy the boat for five grand you know i mean maybe by the time i got done working on it it would have been 12 grand or something like that but that's with all the gear and everything so, yeah, it was very much a, a proletarian expedition. You know, I had a dumpster dive for some of the wood to rebuild some of the, some of the bulkheads inside the boat. Um, so the uh, landed gentry of uh, Annapolis didn't get too involved. No, no. Well, the board of directors for the organization I was trying to raise money for tried to talk Don. Don was the founder and executive director. But the board tried to talk him out of doing the trip. He's like, You're just gonna, he's just going to die. It's going to be bad for the organization. They actually forged my signature when I was up in the Arctic to put the boat in my name, which pissed me off. I went after the trip, I went to the board meeting and they thought I was going to like say all these nice things. I read them the riot act, but they were about to fire Don who created the organization. And I was trying to tell them and I knew about it. And I was trying to tell them to make him emeritus, you know, so at least he has some kind of status and they freaking fired him in an email. And he, <laughs> he ran, he created the organization, ran it for 20 years and the board fired him with a freaking email. So and right after that meeting, but, um, but yeah, so that it wasn't like the whole organization was behind it. It was like Don, the founder, was behind it, and the board was trying to talk him out of it. And after I got around Cape Horn, it looked like I might actually make it because I did the Arctic part, Cape Horn part, and now I just got to get back. And that is when one of the board members finally stood up and did something and went to a, a PR company here in town and got them to sponsor some PR. 
And it was that that raised most of the money. We raised out of the 120 grand, we raised like 90 of it after Cape Horn because people are like, oh, well, you might make it now, you know. But uh, before that, it was it was very difficult. Yeah, but I think I mean, I found myself in the same situation with with goals and and dreams, things I want to go and do. And they to me, they sound so awesome that, of course, someone's going to jump on board and back it. Um, But I but I think, you know, this is a significant um, example of, you know, if you want to do something like however you can figure out a way, you just got to make it happen yourself. And Mm -hmm. people might come on board when you're done, but that's about as good as it's going to get. Yeah, I'd have loved to have a big proper boat, you know, a big proper blue water boat that costs a couple of hundred grand. But what am I going to do? Work until I'm 60 years old so I can afford that boat? I mean, I can, nobody's going to give it to me. So, I mean, it's the same with the nonprofit. Like when I started the nonprofit, I was trying to get someone to donate a proper research vessel. And I spent several months working hard at that. And I realized I could spend the next five years trying to wait for somebody to donate a research vessel. Instead, I just need to go get whatever I could, which was this boat that really wasn't ready for it and needed a ton of work. And, um, and we used it for a few years and, you know, now we use it for five years and now we're selling it. Yeah. So how many, how many seasons, um, have you been doing research? I know you also did a trip out to Japan Mm -hmm. uh, on plastics research. Uh, and then now you finally, um, been donated, uh, what sounds like a pretty, uh, impressive vessel that, that might get you, uh, like a, a flagship to start really building this. Yeah, to give you some scale or size or scope or whatever, uh, the boat I sailed around the Americas was about a 5,075-pound boat, so about a 5,000-pound boat. The boat that I was using up in the Arctic for, and doing plastics research and stuff was about a 25,000-pound boat, uh, empty, maybe a little more with gear. This boat is 116,000 pounds. I mean, I could pick up St. Brendan and put it on the back of this boat, but it's unfinished. I was just there most of yesterday. I was on the boat, actually cleaning it up and stuff but uh, how'd you how'd you score that well it's it's one of those things you know i used to joke around about you can't find a girlfriend until you stop looking you know and it's one of these things like i, I stopped looking basically i not that i gave up because i never gave up on the organization i never gave up on finding a boat but in some ways i did some ways it was like all right i'm done like i've tried for so long for so many years to try to find the boat that i'm done and it was actually my podcast a single-handed podcast i was sitting here talking about how bruce roberts 65 would be this incredible research boat because they're sort of big tubs. They're not, you know, they're, they make a couple different types, but they're a big tubby, heavy boat. You know, you're not going to win any races, but you can fit a lot of people. And so somebody heard and talked to somebody else who happened to have one and was getting ready to do something. The guy was in his 70s, spent 17 years trying to finish it. He built it, trying to, you know, Howdy Bailey, a professional guy, built it. Uh, but uh, he never finished it. And now he, his health is failing and and um, he could have sold it and recapped, you know, maybe 150, 200 grand. He gave probably $20,000 worth of tools. I mean, there must be 30 different power tools on that boat. I mean, like drill presses and the whole nine yards. And he just handed it all over. But we need 100 grand. It's going to take a couple years. And I might end up doing another giant single handed trip just so we could come up with the money to finish that boat. We'll see. So I might end up spending another year alone in the ocean. I don't know. I'll know in the next couple months whether or not I'm going to do it. And, and uh, what would that trip be? To sail, I don't know. I was thinking about sailing. A friend of mine, Randall Reeves, has been trying to do something really cool. Um, he he the figure eight? Yeah, he tried the first time, and he, he didn't. Um, I thought about doing this. I'm not as good as naming things. Figure eight was a great name, you know. But um, 
I thought well, after Cape Horn, I and the wind died after Cape Horn for like five days. I was basically becalmed like a hundred miles from Cape Horn for days. I thought I was in a doldrums. It's really weird, but I guess that can happen down there in the summer once in a while. So, anyways, I had nothing to do. So I thought about you know if I just keep going straight, I could sail around the world and around the Americas both. And I took it serious enough that I did all the math. You know, I, I routed it all out with the miles, and I did the math, and I went through all my supplies with food. And uh, if I stretch it, I might be able, you know, I sort of thought that it all sort of, you know, I can do it. Yeah, okay. And then— Wait, this know, would be like a la Motissier, you just keep sailing yeah, and not go home? Yeah, just keep sailing and not go home, and then go around the world and then go home. So you really considered this? Yeah, I spent half a day running all the numbers and doing all the math. Uh, and then just the, the realization, like— you know, I'm looking around. The boat was falling apart, basically, at this point. I mean, it had been sinking since the middle of the Pacific. Slowly, I just leaked below the water lines, bailing my boat out with an empty can of corn every five hours, so the only thing small enough to fit in a little bilge. All sorts of stuff was breaking. So it, it just hit me really quickly. Like, you're, you're being a total dumbass here. Like, it doesn't matter what the numbers say. Your boat is falling apart. You know, another couple of good storms, and you might not have a boat. You know, like, you just need to get your ass home. And so that's what I did. But I thought Randall was going to do it nonstop, but apparently he's not going to. So he, he tried this year, and he gave it a good effort, but he had some problems, some shit break, and he had to stop. He's going to give it another whack, but he's not going to do, the, the, going to do it nonstop. So he's going to go up and stop in the Arctic, and he'll probably break the Arctic up into, I don't know, 10 different stops or something. Because once you start stopping in the Arctic in the Northwest Passage, you're going to stop all the time because there's all this ice and it's a pain in the ass. I think the only way to do that trip is to do the Arctic first because that's the time-sensitive part. And then the rest of it is just water. Now, Cape Horn, you got to go around twice, so that's time-sensitive too. But the ice is super time. I mean, you can't get through the ice. And not every year is it even open. We, we're going up there this summer. I'm not even sure. You know, it's been a cold spring up there. I'm not even sure how open it's going to be. So you have – there's a very small window too, right, six weeks or so that yeah, you might be able to get through. In the center part, you really only got like two weeks. And it's not that it will refreeze in two weeks. It's just if you don't get through in those two weeks, you've got a lot more distance to travel. You've got thousands of miles on either side of the center, and you're going to be entering the Bering Sea way too late in the season. If you, you know, so you really, everybody goes through the center part of the passage within, you know, usually within like a week or 10 days of each other. Um, I was about a week ahead of everybody when I went through last time. But I don't know if it's going to happen. I think that this, this whole uh, sort of, figure eight idea of sailing around the Americas and around the world, both nonstop single-handed is just sort of the natural evolution of any sort of uh, extremish sport. In other words, like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's only a matter of time. Somebody hikes the Appalachian trail and it's only a matter of time. So they hike it all the way up and all the way back down again, or, or, you know, it's natural for people to keep pushing things further and further and further. Um, And how many times have people sailed around the world nonstop single-handed, you know, a couple of hundred times. So it's, it just makes sense to raise the bar and because uh, that is just natural for, for this sort of thing to happen. So Yeah, yeah it's, it's funny because, um, you know, I always get the sense, uh, you know, some of the things I've done, and um, I, I'll just avoid comparing them to, to what you've done, uh, are, uh, you know, my, my opportunity to kind of raise the bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to an outsider, something like, you know, pushing sailing to the extreme, um, or endurance sports to the extreme is, is just, you know, stupid Hmm. and, you know, all for glory or, or all for masochism or, or whatever it is. Um, but I think one of the really cool things about it, um, is that you, uh, are, are putting this 
this sort of message out to the ether and it sort of resonates with other people that um, that more is possible. I mean, it, it, like you said, sailing around the world, if people just keep doing that, it just gets boring. So you mm -hmm. need something exciting and new to sort of reinvigorate. And uh, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, the younger generation and sailing and, and mm -hmm. what's sailing even going to look like in, right. in 30, 40 years. Um, so I think it's really cool to go out there and push. Um, but it's also probably has a lot to do with just exciting yourself, right? I mean, you're not going to get excited about going and doing something that you could read about in a book. You want to go experience something new. Yeah, it's interesting. It isn't, it isn't as much about being the first to do this and the first to do that in the, in like the title or something, but it is interesting to try to piece together a trip that's never been done because there's just pieces that are missing, you know, and it's like, and you just got to figure that out. And, um, it adds to the challenge, you know, but, um, but you know, it's, it's a quasi desperation move to, you know, in all honesty. Um, I mean, I, I, I would do, if I do this trip and it's still up in the air, I would do it first off and foremost, cause I enjoy doing it. You know, like there's no reason to do anything if you don't enjoy doing it at some level. Right. And we need a hundred grand to finish this big ass research vessel that we got that's going to be like the flagship the whole organization the whole global fleet will hinge around this flagship this will give us a level of credibility that we just haven't had because it'll give us this big boat with teams of scientists we're lucky to raise 20 grand a year like how the hell are we going to raise 100 grand there's no grant that's going to give me 100 grand to finish a boat I and mean, they won't even give me a grant to do research in the arctic when i work with nasa like in 2016 we didn't get a single grant we applied for like a dozen of them and we're working with flipping NASA and it was our second year doing it. We'd already proven we could do it for an entire project a year before. Not a single. So it's like, if nobody's going to fund us to do like legitimate climate research with an organization as big as NASA, then like nobody's going to give me money to finish this boat. So how the hell are we going to do it? Well, I raised 120 grand going around the Americas. Maybe I can raise a hundred grand doing this trip and then we can finish this boat and we can, uh, so Part of it is, yeah, I would love just to do another big single-handed trip. I love single-handed sailing. I, I like the solitude. I like the challenge. Um, I enjoy a lot of things about it. Um, but uh, I need the, the organization really comes first, you know. And Nicole, my girlfriend, has put a lot of time and energy in the last, you know, six years or whatever into it. So I can't be selfish about it either. If we can find a better way to raise the money, uh, so that's why it's still up in the air. We're trying to hear back about a few things. Then so be it. But if we don't have any other option, and the best thing I can do is some crazy-ass sailing trip, um, which I do believe is a natural evolution. I do think that this is going to happen. Um, it, it's just like any other extreme sport, I guess. You know, it's just people keep pushing the bar. Um, yeah, and you'd be starting with a higher profile this time, and, and it's attached to uh, uh, you know, another good cause. Crab was also really, right. really special, but this is, um, this is something that you're – uh, you're tied to and, and have been talking about for years now yeah. um, as far as the ocean this research project. This was the project. third goal at Eagle Rock. You know, my first goal was to ride the bike through Southeast Asia, through Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand, which I did when I was 21. And the second goal was to sail across the ocean, which I've done a bunch of times now. And the third goal was to start a nonprofit. So, I, you know, on that, the third goal doesn't end. You know, I'll yeah. spend the rest of my life. And I'm trying to build, I'm trying to change the world. If I can build a global fleet of research-ready sailboats, uh, it will add an element to ocean research that doesn't exist today. There is no such thing as this anywhere on our planet. And the technology is there. It's just common sense to put it together with a sailboat and do it cheaper. So it's pretty easy to, to figure out. But 
if I am successful, uh, I, I will change some. I'm not saying I'll change everything about it, but I'll change some aspects of it, which therefore will change the world in some way. Why not try to change the world? The world is being changed every day all around us by people just like you and me. You know, every single one of us is capable of incredible things, um, whether it's physical or mental or whatever, you know, um, and they're no different than we are. So why not try to change the world? So that's it. But that's a huge over the top, absolutely ridiculous goal. But that's what I do. I do huge over the top, absolutely ridiculous goals. It's uh yeah, I think for certain people, those are the only goals worth worth having, and uh, I think we probably connect on on that level. Um, but one of the things that uh, really gives me confidence that you'll uh, be successful because it is, I mean, well, you, you have your past, you know, mm -hmm. credibility to speak for you. Um, but it's something you brought up in a podcast, I think, a couple weeks ago, and I just wanted to uh, chat about that a bit before we. Before we uh, wrap it up, and and that was um, you were talking about is it, uh, Bill Bryson book? No, oh, yeah, walk in the yeah, woods. walk in the in the woods, and and this is something that I had have experienced uh, myself and and learned about, and I think it's uh, super important, and I'm interested where you became aware of this. Uh, but you're talking about uh, he's walking the Appalachian Trail, and I, I ordered the book. I haven't I haven't read it yet, um, but uh, I, I found that sort of part of it. And so you say he starts describing exactly the progression of quitting and, and what it's like. And I think in the book, I, again, I have to read it, but it looks like he never even figures out that that's what he was doing. Yeah. Um, was. I don't think he, he is at the level <laughs> on, on this topic that, that sort of we are. It's something that I have completely experienced a lot of times, and I got really good at um, identifying when it's happening, mm -hmm. the process of quitting, and you sort of, come up with some emotional decision. And then I always thought of it as, as rationalizing it to yourself mm -hmm. and convincing yourself. You, you, you talk about uh, justifying um, it to yourself. And what you do is you just convince yourself that what you're doing is the right thing to do, even though you're just totally quitting with mm -hmm. whatever enterprise, whatever goal it is, and it doesn't feel like quitting anymore. And I was just curious what, um, because it's actually really simple to kind of fix once you're able to like, realize what you're doing mm -hmm. but that realization and awareness i think is pretty difficult to to just magically appear someday mm -hmm. so what uh like what has given you that experience and you know what kinds of things have you found yourself quitting and is that like helping you now with the research project just knowing that you um got to make it happen yeah bill bryson totally did not mean to describe quitting and um he's just a good enough writer and I don't know. Maybe that's also what I got out of it. Maybe somebody else could read the same part and get a different sort of thing. But, you know, he quits a lot in that book. But he's not a hiker either, so whatever. And it's, he's an entertaining writer. Um, but uh, what was the other question? What was I? Yeah, so um, what uh, – well, because, like, Bill – so I think, oh, I, think he, I think he says at a certain point he, they, they walk into a convenience store and they see the map and they're like, holy yeah, shit, like we're a, only here. Right, he's in, like, an REI or some – they're buying socks or something and then like that. he says uh he, he a few pages later i just saw the sentence and he says something like yeah so we weren't um we weren't going to do the whole appalachian trail but we were still hiking a lot of it you yeah. know he hadn't even realized what he did so i'm just curious when um have you done stuff like that when do you see yourself learning that lesson right yeah well you know if you if i commit myself to accomplishing some kind of goal whatever it is um i sort of build my life around accomplishing that goal, which could be 
difficult. It could put a strain on your finances. It could put a strain on your relationships. I mean, I, I you know, I lost a, a girlfriend because the second or the, the first time I sailed alone across the Atlantic, a great, wonderful girl. I was lucky to date her. Um, but, you know, it was the, she gave me the me or the boat thing. And, um, and, you know, in retrospect, had I had sold the boat and moved back to Ohio and not done the transatlantic, I'd have had some resentment towards her. You know, it would have, someone would have been boiling down. It would have hurt the relationship. Uh, but for whatever reasons, when I set my mind on accomplishing a goal, like I say, I, I guess part of it is I base my life around that, you know. Um, there's a lot of sacrifices that have to be made. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of hard work and sacrifices that need to be done in order to accomplish a goal. And I think the hard work isn't what really stops people because a lot of people work hard and are capable of it. But I think the sacrifices are. And in the case of Bill Bryson, the sacrifices were physical strain and stress and, and discomfort of, the, of hiking for day after day and, and the, the wet campsites and all this crap that he'd been going through. Um, and, but you cannot let the sacrifices stop you. You know, like a nonprofit, it's financial suicide. I'm basically shooting my bank account in the head because I don't make a salary. I work all the time and I get paid nothing, you know, and that's why I try to sell boats and do other things on the side, uh, just sort of scrape by. But um, you have to understand that there's going to be sacrifices in any goal that you set, especially big goals. And so when you find yourself in those situations of discomfort, uh, maybe physical discomfort or financial discomfort or whatever it is, you, you have already accepted before you started the goal that this is the way it was going to be. So when you wind up in that situation, sort of like being in the ocean, you're like, yeah, okay. Uh, I knew before I came out here that, you know, it was going to be something like this. It was going to be hard. And, um, and you know, if you quit, like, okay, I, you tell 10 people you're going to hike something, all right? I'm going to go do the Grand Canyon. Tell 10 people. Maybe even get some sponsorship to do it. And then you give up halfway, or you give up, you guess halfway, you still got to hike out. So you give up a quarter of the way down or something like that. And yeah, you broke your word to those people. You told people you're going to do something, and you broke your word. And I have a hard time with that. But even worse is you broke your word to yourself. You know, you have, before you tell other people you're going to do something, you tell yourself you're going to do it. And how can you look at yourself in the mirror? I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but at the same time, you got to look yourself in the mirror, and you got to realize you broke your word to yourself which is way worse than breaking it to other people in my mind because if you, if you get used to doing that once or twice, what's going to stop you from doing it 100 times? Yeah. So you can't allow yourself. you got to understand big goals take hard work and sacrifice. you got to know going into it so when you wind up in a shit situation, you knew ahead of time that you are going to be in that. You, know, you knew it was going to be hard. And, so, but, and you also can't allow yourself to think about quitting because you know, like with the Bill Bryson thing, he, he allowed himself to think about it for just a split second. And it only took a split second to justify it to himself and then justify it to other people. You know, that's sort of the, pro the progress or pro whatever. So you cannot, like going around the Americas, I was going to sink the boat before I quit. You know, the only way for me to get home was to continue going forward. There was no quitting. And it was because I said I'm going to do this. And so I'm going to either do it or I'm going to die trying, but I'm not going to quit because I'm not going to break my word to myself. I don't want to break my word to Don Backey. I don't want to let other people down either. But I got to live with myself. You know, <laughs> I got to look at myself every goddamn day. I'm an ugly motherfucker, too. I got to look in the mirror and see what I don't want to have to see that. Plus, I got to see, you know, the fact that I let myself down. I, I would rather die. I mean, I'd rather die than, than have to go through my life that way. So, um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's for each, everybody is different, you know. Um, and I didn't start big. You know, I did start relatively small on a small boat doing – 
the intercoastal waterway, which is very basic and easy. You know, it's not like I jumped right into this and, and, you know, you didn't jump right into biking across the entire country. You had to build up to it and take time. And, you know, um, I think it's easy to have some disconnect hearing me say this stuff and think that I'm somewhat different. You know, we're all basically the same. You know, I'm no different. I'm, I'm not stronger. I'm not smarter. I'm not funnier. I'm not prettier than anybody else. You know, we're all dealing with the same basic shit. And, um, well, and I think it's also, uh, you know, people can often, cause I'll look at other, other people who are, who are able to, to do kind of what I do at another level and it's more of a lifestyle for them and they have, you know, sponsors or, or whatever else. And, and think that it's not a struggle for them the whole way through, right. you know? And, and, um, I think that's what trying to find a way, you know, I'm constantly looking for a way to get myself to, to meet that struggle daily and, and just keep like, just keep trying to pick the lock, keep pushing mm -hmm. forward. And, um, and, uh, you know, like you were saying, not, not give up, not start justifying that, Hey, maybe a uh, nonprofit's not the way to go. Maybe I need financial stability mm -hmm. and I should go in another direction. Well, I still think that stuff like all the damn time. Like what the fuck am I doing? You know, I'll ne you know, I need to get that old, you'll never succeed. It'll never work out. You know, there's, um, so, you know, or you never went to college and, you know, how are you going to be running a science organization and all these other voices in your head? But, yeah, if you, you just got to stick to it and eventually you'll succeed. We live in a I mean, there is a lot of opportunity in the United States and we also have a lot of freedoms in the United States. And, um, you know, if you work hard enough at anything, it might take you a long time, but you can you can accomplish. Like if you want to be a doctor, you can be a doctor in this country. If you're in Cambodia, you're not going to be anything but a rice farmer or work in a, con a, a sweatshop. You know, that's like all your options. Yeah. So if you want to start a nonprofit, the best way and easiest way is to have a bunch of money. So if you're like, whether it's like a trust fund scenario, which is fine. You know, if, if you've got a lot of money from your family, that's a great way to spend some of it is some charitable thing, creating an organization. Or if you're retired and you got a bunch of money. But the problem is to start a nonprofit from scratch with no money at all, and you have no money, the organization has no money, and um, it's just a really long grind to get it up. But it's easy to see success at the end and not realize all the struggles and bullshit people went through. You know, you just see the end product, you know, so. Well, just like uh, dumpster diving to fix up your Alban Vega <laughs> for yeah. the uh, for the uh, Americas trip, you, you've kind of scraped this uh, nonprofit up from nothing. And it's it's really impressive. And if people go to uh, oceanresearchproject.org, you get it. Ocean there's Research some Project some really cool videos of them out there doing their thing um, and ways to uh, help. So I. Hope everybody will, and it'll be cool to see where that goes. Yeah, yeah, check it out, and check out the Red Dot, Red Dot in the Ocean PBS, which is technically Red Dot on the Ocean. I've been mispronounced. Someone corrected me the other day. They're like, is it called Red Dot on the Ocean? I'm like, no, it's Red Dot in the Ocean. And yeah, they were right. So for like five years, I've been saying my name wrong, my film's name. But anyways, check out the film. Uh, check out the nonprofit, and uh, you know, yeah, and uh, also single-handed podcast. Yeah, single -handed uh, sailing podcast. Many, many more. Y if you ever want to, like, I'm not even shopping for sea-worthy um, clothing. You have like a whole podcast about what to well, wear. Mostly what I'm to wear. Rambling the... about being naked in the ocean. Yeah, like, that one didn't go. Very it's super. Far. <laughs> it's super entertaining, and I and I feel like I'm learning a lot, and I don't need to know anything about what to wear in the ocean, um, and. 
that doesn't matter. It's it's still very educational and very entertaining. So yeah, I wonder how good that podcast really is, man. I mean, it's a lot of time. It's just me going blah blah blah, no microphone. So hey, I I'm I'm not that easy to please. Um, I'm fairly fairly malleable guy, but um, but I love it. It's yeah, it's my yeah. favorite podcast. So. Anyways, people hopefully will check it out. I'll keep following and uh, maybe keep everybody up to date with the next the next uh, fun adventure. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah. Alright, I'm going to leave you with some more of the sounds of Imarhan, one of my favorite groups, Toreg, rock band. I think they're playing some traditional music in there too, but I love them. I believe they're from Algeria, um, although I'm going to say maybe Mali, throw that out there just in case. Uh, and thanks again, Matt, so much for taking the time to sit down. It was really a pleasure to meet you. And uh, if anybody... Uh, I don't know, wants to get in touch with me for whatever reason. It's Andre at willgodo.com. Take it easy, everybody. 